Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Hit your talk back if you can hear me. Yeah. I hear you. I'm still here. Good. Now, just breathe. Just listen to my voice. You've heard it before. You've got nothing to be afraid of. For now. But we're not out of this yet. They'll be back. But we'll be ready. You know, I've had my share of scrapes, but I've never seen anything like this. These are men made into monsters. They call themselves kamikaze. They've given up their bodies as weapons of the Emperor. They believe they've got a destiny to fulfill. They're not trying to make it home. That means they're coming for us. Their death is their glory, and they mean to take us with them. That means there's only one thing we can do. We meet them head on and oblige them. We fulfill their death wish. You with me? This is it, soldier. Us or them. Buckle that chin strap and follow me. Hello, my name is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief from the intergalactically acclaimed video game phenomenon, Halo. I've spent almost 20 years portraying a hero who has been in the thick of the action, doing battle with creatures from another world. But this story, this ain't sci-fi. This is real. This is as real as it gets. And that's why it's so fucking scary. As you listen to this episode, I ask you to remember that all it takes for you to be the one in that cockpit isn't much more than a couple generations, a different birthplace, and a twist of fate. It's men, like you and me, that fought this battle, this war, on both sides. It was men that committed themselves to this insane conflict. Not monsters. Just men. This all really did happen. Remember that. Now, turn that fucking volume up. I'll let War Daddy take it from here. Chief, out. By 0600 on the morning of April 7th, the sun has bleached away the night, revealing a leaden sky of furry cirrus clouds hissing fine sheets of rain like sheer curtains. Yamato and her escorts cut a white slice through the blue-black sea. On her bridge, Admiral Ito paces, calculating and recalculating their course in his mind. Now, finally out in the open sea, he never felt more like prey in his life. Their course would see them steaming in the great wide open for at least ten daylight hours. It only took six hours for Yamato's sister Musashi to be sighted and set upon. Even in this ugly weather, he thought, 
It was now just a matter of time. He watches the young men on deck, working to fine-tune their gun sights and stack ammo at their stations, pridefully puffing away on their special-issue Emperor cigarettes. They might as well light them up now, thought Ito. Good of his staff officers to issue them while there is still a peaceful moment to be had. Originally painstakingly rolled from the Emperor's own private tobacco stash and presented as gifts for the Emperor's family and nobles, while they were still hand-rolled, they were now only issued to Imperial forces on the eve of great battle. Ito inspects the golden seal of the chrysanthemum printed on the elegant, filterless cigarette. A character on the box reads, For a nobleman. He couldn't help but smirk at how such a simple gesture could stir such pride in his men. Just then, the ship's onboard intercom crackles to life. The voice of an executive officer relays a message from Combined Fleet. Apparently, yesterday's Kikasui kamikaze raids had done extensive damage to the enemy. 60 U.S. ships damaged, four carriers knocked out, as the words, quote, a blow from which the enemy shall never recover, rang across the deck of Yamato, cheers from every gunner, engineer, and sailor echo from bow to stern. Incredible news. Perhaps they could expect less air opposition after all. Then, as if on cue, a small formation of zeros roar overhead and circle in a wide arc above the great battleship. Ito steps out on the platform, he himself taken aback by the beautiful sight. Angels on their shoulders, slicing through the clouds, thin beams of sunshine glinting and sparkling, making the wings shine like silver. As the lead zero dips his wings in greeting, the boys on deck erupt into overjoyed cheers, every man leaping, whistling, and waving at the breathtaking sight. Ito too waves at the circling pilots. For all he knew, his son was up there. And in fact, he was. This was, I guess what you'd call, wave one and a half of Operation Kiksui. And his son was in fact leading the sortie. This was nothing close to the air support they had wanted, but at the last minute, Kamikaze Commander Ugaki was convinced to send up what little he could spare. However, air support this was not. With the real second wave of Kikasui not due for another six days, Ugaki was loath to break off any of the precious planes meant for that second big push, especially if it was in order to escort some insane, last-minute surface suicide mission. But after all, how could he refuse to aid, even if only in spirit, those 6,000 brave souls committing their lives to this doomed mission? It would only be a token force, but an inspirational one. Above Yamato, the Zeros bank around one last time and dip their wings in farewell. Ito stands on the deck amid the cheers, watching them disappear into the dark clouds of the coming storm. The weather was starting to get ugly, which could only be good news for him. Feeling a figure looming behind him, he turns around to find a staff officer waiting politely. He's handed a freshly printed transcript, reports of U.S. scout planes quietly spying from above the darkening rain clouds. If we can see them, surely they can see us. Ito calmly puts an emperor's cigarette in his mouth, strikes his lighter, and takes a deep puff. With his eyes to the horizon, the direction in which his brave son was now heading to meet his enemy, he exhales thoughtfully. This was probably the last moment of calm he was ever going to have for the rest of his life.
on the USS Bunker Hill, Admiral Mark Mitcher is reading a very similar transcript. They finally had visual reports to confirm the pre-dawn radar pings. One big-ass something, plus a handful of cruisers and destroyers, but most importantly, nothing in the way of air support. If there ever was one, this was Mitcher's window to cement the legacy of air power. With his intelligence brain trust crunching the numbers, trying to project the Yamato's possible course, there was still no way to know exactly what she was going to do. She was still not in range, and therefore they did not have a hard target. And by the time she was in range, they could easily lose contact with her, or she might just zigzag to a totally different quadrant of the map. But if Mitcher didn't act now, the Battleship Boys would have all the glory. It was a gamble, the biggest gamble of his career. And right about now, Mitcher was feeling like the dice was going to burn a hole through his hand. A Royal Navy liaison watches the tense scene unfold. This technically was a joint operation, after all. To his British eyes, the whole thing was absolutely wild. It had been incredible to watch the American Navy come to be what it now was. From a ragtag outfit who had never fought a modern war, to a truly frightfully efficient global force. They had the resources, and by now, they damn sure knew how to use them. Still, there were so many weird artifacts about the American Navy. All that ice cream and not a drop of booze. Familiarity between ranks that was simply unthinkable to the class-conscious Britons, but yet an offense that earned a reprimand to a Royal Navy man could send a U.S. sailor to the brig. Damn peculiar in so many ways, but this scene he was currently watching clearly took the cake. Just what the hell was old Baldy up to? A steely-looking Admiral Mark Mitcher stares up at the map board, which is covered in Yamato's projected courses, like aberrated human veins. He rubs a hand over his hairless scalp and tugs back on his trademark baseball cap. The Admiral then rises to his feet and says, quote, Order a full strike at 1000 hours. Target 344 degrees. Range 238 miles. Even though this was the order they had all been waiting for, the room stops in stunned silence. But Old Baldy doesn't flinch. And with that, all hands break into controlled chaos. Mitcher now walks over to his giant captain's chair, climbs atop, and lights a lucky. Finally, it's go time. The British liaison still can't quite believe his ears, though. Finally understanding what just happened, he blurts out, My God, you're launching a full attack before you can be certain where the Japs are heading. From atop his throne, eyes now fixed on the horizon, Mitcher calmly says, We're launching against the spot that I would be if I were Yamato. The British liaison officer stammers, Bloody hell, then. You'd better be right. Old Baldy exhales a giant, unfiltered cloud of Virginia tobacco and turns, fixing the Brit with his laser blue eyes and says, No shit. On the USS Bella Wood, the Flyboys are still finishing chow and lounging below decks. Gillespie whips a fastball to Philly, the clap of their metronomic pre-flight hardball warm-up echoing along with the harmonic voices of the Andrews sisters. Maz is in his usual spot, hunched over the mop bucket, 
waiting for his fluttering stomach to do its ritual evacuation, but his concentration is broken by the howl of the alarm. This is it, boys. Shake a leg, hollers Gillespie. The pilots break into action, taking the last bite of a biscuit and wrenching on flight gear. In the melee, Maz's vomit bucket gets kicked and sent spinning. Christ, I didn't get a chance to puke yet, yells Maz. Oh, Maz, how you gonna keep your girl's figure? Chirps Philly, slapping Maz's ass as he sprints past. In just a few chaotic minutes, the well-drilled pilots and flight crews are sprinting through roaring engines and leaping into their taxiing Hellcats. The weather is shit, pissing rain and thick sporadic cloud cover. Already wiping his goggles dry, Maz looks to the leaden sky, muttering, This is gonna suck. Old Baldy must call something big if he sent us up in this shit, shouts Philly while tugging on his leather flight helmet. Clicking into his radio, squad leader Gillespie shares what little he knows. Listen up, fellas. We're gonna be operating at extreme maximum range on this one. About two hours flight time. Leaves us just about 20 minutes over target. No more, or you don't have enough fuel to make it back, okay? Should leave us plenty of time to get our licks in, though. With cockpit canopies slamming home above their heads, Gillespie shoots a final look to his squad. All right, boys. Here we go again. Gillespie flashes Maz a thumbs up. Maz flashes it back. Here we go again. Woo! Here we fucking go again! Runway crews signal all clear. And with that... Dozen carriers, USS San Jacinto, Bennington, Hornet, Bellawood, Essex, Batan, Bunker Hill, Cabot, Hancock, Langley, Yorktown, and Intrepid launched their spawn of 439 fighters, bombers, and torpedo planes, each now clawing up and into the sky. On December 7, 1941, a day which shall live in infamy, Yamamoto launched his massive surprise attack on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor with a total of 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft launched from six aircraft carriers. The results were devastating, hitting all eight American battleships, four of which were sunk. Right now, Admiral Mitcher has that plus an extra 86 fully loaded planes in the air, all aimed at eight destroyers, one light cruiser, and one giant fucking battleship. And it wasn't until now, with his massive swarm of 439 avenging angels in the air, that Admiral Mitcher decides to alert his boss that he was taking action. He turns to his comms officer and says, quote, Inform Admiral Spruance that I propose to strike the Yamato sortie at 1200, unless otherwise directed. Ask him, will you take them, or shall I? Now, this has got to be one of the ultimate ask-for-forgiveness-rather-than-permission moments in the history of ask-for-forgiveness-not-permission moments. I mean, holy shit. Old Baldy's got some swinging naval cannonballs, huh? Now, with the dice truly rolling, what comes back is in fact the shortest official U.S. naval message of all time. Admiral Spruance simply replies, quote, You take them. Now, this has got to be one of my all-time favorites. I just love when you can see such a massive, history-making decision boiled down to just a few words typed on a tiny piece of paper. 
The all-time best has to be the Spartan response to the ultimatum sent by Philip II of Macedonia. You might know him better as Alexander the Great's father. With Philip's massive invasion force dwarfing the tiny Spartan army, in pressing for their surrender, he issues the following message, quote, You are advised to submit without further delay, for if my army enters your land, every man shall be slain, every woman raped, every child enslaved, and your city razed to the ground. The legendary Spartan response was simply, quote, If. God damn it, I love that. It's laconic salt like that which sets the tone for all the best military verbal duels. There's some other great ones in this war, in fact, like the commander of the 101st Airborne in the completely encircled town of Bastogne, when given the opportunity to surrender or be, quote, annihilated by a German bombardment, his reply was just one word, quote, nuts. The guy didn't like cursing, so instead of fuck you, <laughs> nuts. Then there's the one we spoke about at length in the last episode, when FDR hears the Navy has cracked Japanese codes, giving them a chance to strike Yamamoto directly, his response was just as simple, quote, get him. And get him they did. So in that tradition, I think this, officially the shortest ever US naval operational order, deserves its place in the Hall of Fame. With just those three simple words, Admiral Spruance not only handed over the baton of military supremacy to Mitcher's flyboys, but sealed the fate of the Yamato and what was left of the once mighty Imperial Japanese surface fleet. As Mitcher reads Spruance's You Take Them response, he did something no man on his staff had ever actually seen him do. Old Baldy cracked up into some seriously earth-shaking laughter. However, that laughter was cut off almost immediately. Reports of incoming Japanese aircraft were now sighted by the carriers whose planes had just slipped over the horizon. With the main element of Mitra's defensive ring already miles out en route to intercept Yamato, things are about to get dicey. A brief quiet settles over carrier USS Hancock, with her hunting party of Hellcats, Helldivers, and Corsairs having buzzed down the short runway and up into the blue. All attention would now be turned to getting ready to receive the boys when they came back, always the more difficult, nerve-wracking, and dangerous part of the day. But before the flight crews had had a chance to catch their breath, the alarm sirens are howling. Incoming raiders are sighted, spotters picking up a swarm of about 115 strong, coming in hot. The kamikaze squad, known as the Kyushu Raiders, was now inbound. Veteran airman Himatsu Kobayashi is lucky to have made it through the first blitz of U.S. interceptors. Although it was a much lighter welcome wagon than yesterday, so many of his raiding squad was pounced on and bludgeoned by those blue-winged corsairs. They hardly stood a chance against those goddamn American banshees. Too slow, too heavy, too inexperienced, they were nothing more than chum in the water, shredded in the sky barely a hundred miles to target. But this was far from Yoshida's first rodeo. Charging low and fast, spurning contact and avoiding the swarm, he's made it through unscathed. Now through the enemy phalanx and humming at 1100 feet, Yoshida finally spots the target of a lifetime. 
Even to his wizened eyes, the sight of a massive aircraft carrier was stunning to behold. She was magnificent, like a giant skyscraper lying flat on her back, cutting a milk-white wake across the glimmering tabletop of the Pacific. If he was flying his usual mission of escort, clearing the path for kamikaze, he would have had to stop and tangle with the corsairs, and probably would have been blasted out of the sky, but that was not his mission today. No, Ugaki had practically thrown these new orders at him on the goddamn runway. Part of him hated himself for wanting to refuse the orders, but heroics aside, this was folly. He was one of the last of the skilled veterans to still be alive. He had flown in dogfights over Midway, taking three of those fat, dauntless torpedo bombers from the sky back when the Zero reigned supreme. He had survived the bloody carnage at the Marianas turkey shoot, scoring at least two kills before he himself was torn up and crash-landed on some tiny spit of jungle. He had seen so many fall by his side, but somehow remained lucky. Yet, as the blood-red tide of battle turned against his nation, he knew his luck would someday run out. Today, in fact, was that day. Flying now towards his ultimate doom, he could feel the welded-on 550-pound bomb rattling just below his feet. Ice-white and pink Yamazakura flower petals still clung to his instrument panel, dusted there by the schoolgirls who served as farewell-wishers to the hundreds of young men flying off to their deaths. Now, he too would join them. For today, he was Kamikaze. The words of his friend, the great ace Yukio Seki, were now ringing in his ears. Yukio was such a cocky son of a bitch, but my god, what a hell of a flyer. He was maybe the best of us, and the first to die as Kamikaze. Yoshida remembers him popping off to some war correspondent just before heading to his zero on that fateful morning, saying in that brash way only he could, quote, If they'd only let me, I could plant a 550-pound bomb on the deck of any carrier without body crashing and still make it home. Japan's future is bleak if it's forced to kill one of its best pilots. Onishi and Ugaki must have loved that. It's funny how the fear of a reprimand is alleviated when you know you're not coming home to face it. But what Seki said next, as he climbed into the cockpit, was what now stuck in Kobayashi's soul, pinned there like a well-shot arrow. Quote, It is better to die rather than live as a coward. Kobayashi re-grips his control stick. He too was not flying to his death for the Emperor or the Empire, but because he was ordered to. He could now only pray that his ultimate sacrifice would somehow help save his people from extinction. He had lived a lucky life, but that life was now behind him. Barely realizing it, Kobayashi feels his plane banking out of its wide sweeping turn the nose pulling towards that magnificent carrier as if magnetized. He can now see the flight deck with just a handful of planes on it. Pity. A full deck of fueled up aircraft would have made a much better funeral pyre. The boys below see him too. Big black blasts of death start to erupt around him, but Yoshida expertly weaves around as if they're mere annoyances finds himself savoring the sensation, flitting and dipping like a dragonfly. 
With his heart thumping like the tattoo of the Wadiako drum, Kobayashi's mind is void of thought, yet electrified by pure instinct. He unconsciously pushes the throttle to the max, the rattling buzz of the propeller vibrating his eyeballs. With alien detachment, he now realizes this is his death dive. Like flying through a slow motion dream, he dodges golden crisscrossing tracers that slice upwards, the glowing lead screaming past. With the carrier below rapidly growing, he only had to be lucky for a few seconds more. Perhaps this was the greatest luck of all. He was to become the shattered jewel. He was to die a warrior's death. Perhaps he would even meet his old friend Yukio and Minotogawa after all. What was it the cadets were told to scream? Hisatsu. The phrase that meant perfect kill. Kobayashi struck the deck of carrier USS Hancock with his eyes wide open. To the amazement of the gunners, his zero slipped through the air barrage like vapor, a boxer dodging punches, screaming down the flight deck and releasing his 550-pound bomb at just 50 feet. The massive blast completely destroying the port hangar, his plane cartwheeling and exploding among the rows of park reserve planes. Men engulfed in the spray of burning jet fuel like dragon fire leap off the deck in a vain attempt to save their scorched flesh. Thirteen of the parked Hellcats catch fire and explode in a chain reaction that erupts two of the 40mm cannons, incinerating every member of the gun crews like paper dolls. This was the power of just a single, clean kamikaze strike. 72 dead, 82 horribly burned their bodies ruined for the rest of their lives, 13 planes destroyed, the carrier itself mangled, and only due to the incredibly heroic efforts of the damage control crews, Hancock would not sink. While the guns barked above their heads, fending off more incoming suiciders that would continue all morning, medics frantically worked to save the wounded, many of whom were torched beyond recognition. Asbestos-clad firefighters tug on gas masks to fight the blaze and clear the burning wreckage, and they had to work fast. In just a few hours' time, 52 of their flyers were somehow expected to land on this very deck. A hit like this just a year ago would have surely sent this ship to the bottom, but as formerly unprecedented strikes like this were becoming more and more a frequent reality, the boys on board were forced to get good at handling it. Although in bad shape, Hancock was to survive. Watching the smoke billow through binoculars, his own gun crews adding AA fire to the sky, Mitcher sends Hancock a congratulatory message. Amid all this chaos, the first reports from his attack squadron are now being received. The Yamato has been sighted. The mood on Yamato is positively euphoric. With the news of yesterday's devastating kamikaze raids reverberating around the ship, there's real doubt that the U.S. can put up the kind of planes needed for a heavy strike. 
On the bridge, Captain Ariga has the bulletproof glass windows lowered. It wouldn't do to be all snug and protected when his AA gunners fought ape naked in their unsheltered gun tubs just below. A logistical commander submits his report, cheerfully commenting, Halfway there, Captain. So far, so good. Vice Admiral Ito's white-gloved hand holds a pair of high-powered Zeiss binoculars to his eyes as he studies the slate-gray sky. Layers of dense clouds and patchy rain squalls obscure what the eye can see, but perhaps the kamikazes had opened the door for them after all. That's when two fat U.S. flying boats are spotted far off in the distance. Contact was inevitable at this stage, so it could really mean anything. Captain Ariga, the squatty, gruff, bulldog of a man who looked more like a blacksmith than a samurai, takes a nice pull from his hip flask and turns to Ito. With a wry smile, he says, Find time to try out those new beehive shells, don't you think? Ito doesn't flinch, still fixated at the glowering sky. Ariga calls down a fire request for the brand new Sanshiki shells. These were huge projectiles encased in 20mm shot, fired from the massive 18.1-inch cannons and detonated by time delay. And when these babies popped, it was like mega flak on steroids, designed to blow entire squadrons out of the sky. Ariga was itching to put them to good use. In moments, the rear turrets level up, sighting the two tiny distant intruders and unleashes its deafening blast. The incredible shockwave jolts the entire ship, the whole stern disappearing in a white cloud of cordite. Distant puffs of black burst, and the two planes scatter and peel off, sending the watching deck gunners into joyous cheers. Ariga turns to Ito and chuckles. Well, that scared him off. Eighteen-year-old anti-air gunner Sadaki Asano flinches at the earth-shattering boom of the 18-inch guns. There was just no getting used to that kind of noise. Each eruption shatters the air with concussive force, sending the men into cheers and war cries. The shells whistle into the sky and burst like a flash of summer heat lightning behind the gray curtain of clouds. Out on the open deck, Sadaki drops his gear in a clump with the others. No sense in hampering his movements. The battle was about to begin. He slips the jade amulet taken from his village shrine up into his headband and ties it tight. He was gonna need all the luck he could get. You still have that? Chides his best friend, Takeo. The two of them were a married pair in the six-man loading team for the number 36 triple-mounted 25mm gun. Really too young for this post, he got the job by winning a foot race against a bigger, older cadet which, up until this moment, was the proudest day of his young life. Trained and drilled and expected to step up as gunner if the present one should fall, the quickness and fearlessness of these loaders is what would keep them firing. On the bridge, a frantic runner scrambles in and hands Captain Ariga a transcript that leeches all the color from his face. The Ryuku observation post reports a force of over 250 enemy aircraft inbound. Without any change in his expression, Ito finally lowers his binoculars and says, Here they come. 
Ariga grabs his binoculars and sights the horizon, but sees nothing through the sheets of steel gray and swirling clouds. Then, as if manifesting out of the thin air, a massive swarm of angry black bees breaks through the veil of fine misting rain. Suddenly, the voices of lookouts begin breathlessly calling out targets. Ten of them, fifty, a hundred, enemy incoming. Ariga grabs the all-ship comms blower and bellows. This is the commanding officer speaking. Stand by to repel attack. The decisive battle has begun. At 1,500 feet, the U.S. pilots are driving through soup. This was supposed to be a coordinated attack, but just getting up in this shit today had proven to be a goddamn mess. With so many squads tearing off their carriers in a piecemeal frenzy, they were soon scattered all over the map. Hancock's first squad wasn't even airborne until a full half hour after the first group. Between the spotty communication, headsets blasting screeching static, and the confusion of hundreds of planes all clawing up into the sky, accidents happen. A Corsair's tail was clipped by a friendly propeller, causing Lieutenant Al Barwa to lose control and crash into the sea. He never bailed out, becoming the very first casualty of the day. Chalked up to low visibility and just the sheer unprecedented number of aircraft, it was a miracle that there weren't more mid-air collisions. It was an ugly ride so far, slipping in and out of thick, soggy clouds. The boys were flying blind most of the way, but after a few hours of agonizing hunting, they finally catch their first murky glimpse of Mitcher's white whale. Down below, through small gaps in cloud cover, they were now seeing the Japanese attack force at the center of which was the greatest, most formidable battleship ever put to sea. The best news? There was no air escort to speak of, which is just unfucking believable It was too good to be true. This would give the U.S. flyers practically free reign to execute their attack. Gillespie keys his radio, hitting his boys amid painful whining static. He was sure their comms were being jammed, but nonetheless, as squad leader, it was up to him to coordinate this airborne ballet of doom. He's first on the scene. His boys get first crack. All call for Zulu Charlie Delta. This is Pipe Dream 12. All right, fellas. Clock is ticking now. 18 minutes or less to cook this goose. Zulu Charlie Delta, wear up first. Touch the ceiling, quick back down, and clear the road. Peacemaker 10's Helldivers are gonna follow. Authentication, Sugar 010, Kilo Niner. We're going for the big one. Maz now catches a glimpse of the giant gray leviathan below. Jesus Christ, look at the size of that thing. At 900 feet, she was near as big as any U.S. carrier. Only 100 feet shorter than the damn Chrysler building. Hello, Mad Maz. You hear that? We're up. Good copy, Philly. Yeah, I'm with you. Authenticating shooter 010 Kilo Niner. All right, after you, Peggy Sue. That's when the huge gray beast below lights up. Twinkling orange flashes, a house-sized cough of white, the distant concussion seen but not heard, imprinting itself across the ocean as shockwave, followed by a whistling, then... Gigantic flak bursts explode into screaming black tendrils, punctuated by crackling white-hot electric green neon lightning. 
volley of the San Shiki beehive shells bursts like 4th of July fireworks from hell, the concussion strong enough to throw their aircraft around like dry leaves. Holy shit! Philly wrenches his stick and steadies his bird. The second volley follows with whizzing, crackling combustion. The squad of Hellcats yank their sticks back, clawing away from the crashing shell storm. Get up, get up, get up! Swimming up through soupy, sodden clouds and then suddenly breaking through into another world. Just above the cloud layer, they find themselves amid dazzling sunshine, now floating above a swirling gray carpet. They catch their breath in this relative safety, momentarily invisible to the Japanese spotters. Sun gleams off a hundred glass cockpits, the shining planes soaring like a massive swarm of blackbirds. Every member of the U.S. Naval Airborne family was represented. Hellcats, Helldivers, Wildcats, Avengers, and Corsairs. To the eyes of these pilots, there's simply no other word to describe this scene other than beautiful. They are avenging angels, professionals with a job to do and killers with a score to settle. Down below rumbles a drum roll of bass-heavy thunder. Gillespie catches the eyes of his squad. It's all business now. Zulu Charlie Delta, this is Pipe Dream 12. My mark. Saddle up. Let's take this big bitch. The time was 12.37. Their squad leader gracefully rolls over and disappears into the gray abyss. Philly nods to Maz. Maz nods back. Showtime. They roll and dive. From the bridge, Ariga is still counting black sesame seeds. Could those all really be planes? It was more aircraft in the air at one time, hunting one target than any Japanese eyes had ever seen. Fighters, bombers, the damn Corsairs, torpedo bombers, they've got everything. No sense in coordinating fire. Let all escorts take them as they come. There'll be plenty for everybody. Yamato's great superstructure was ringed by an absurd amount of bristling barrels. Giant triple-mounted six-inch naval cannons, big enough to be the main guns for any U.S. destroyer. Double-mounted five-inch naval AA turrets, layers of double 13-millimeter heavy machine guns, and over 162 25-millimeter autocannons. Their nests of triple-mounted muzzles spiked like porcupine quills. Not to mention those outrageous 18.1-inch earth-shattering fuck-you tubes. She was truly a juggernaut. As the bugle call for independent fire echoes across the deck, Sadaki and his crew of loaders and ammo bearers scramble to stack fat 15-round preloaded magazines of 25mm explosive tracer in ready-to-go piles. They would be hovering over their guns, and the instant they ran dry, he and his partner Tadaki would swap out the magazine. They'd drilled this a thousand times, but this was the real thing, and his heart was pounding in his chest. Of the 54 others like it, gun number 36 was his. This was his post, and he would not leave it until the battle was finished, or he was dead. As Sadaki crouches in a sprinter's starting stance, with his hands gripping two fresh magazines, the gunner rips the charger and peers at the incoming storm through his spiderweb gun sight. 
Crouched across from Sadaki, Takeo catches his eye, shooting him a nervous smile. See you in Minotogawa, he says. Sadaki tries to smile back, but suddenly he can't feel his face. Spotters start screaming and every eye snaps to the sky. He can almost see something. Like wolves in a twilight forest, there is movement in the mist. Suddenly at three o'clock and closer than they'd realized, fat black hellcats pierce the clouds. Hundreds of gun barrels swing up to the sky and with a mad cheer of... Every muzzle opens fire. shudders and pierces through the lead-colored river. His propeller howls, burrowing through the suit. He can see nothing but rain stinging his windshield until... pops through the other side like coming out of a tunnel into a world of flashing, flying, lead death. Greeted by booming, tooth-rattling black flak bursts and whizzing AA fire. Maz fights against bearings, spotting the giant gray beast at 9 o'clock low. His plunging squad ahead of him is already taking fire. Gold-orange whips of Tracer lash the sky, arcing up at first in slow motion, then screaming by. His tiny plane jumps and jerks in the concussion of near-miss flakburst. Maz struggles to straighten up, wrenching his gun sights back onto the battleship. Holy shit, it's like flying into an erupting volcano. Every one of Yamato's guns is barking flame and spitting death. Up ahead, a diving Hellcat catches a blast. Its wings shred off, spinning out of control and smashes into the sea. Other diving Hellcats open up with their 50 cal machine guns, raking the deck but catching hell. Defense and fire hacks chunks out of them as they race into the breach. Maz can feel the weight of his twin 550-pound bombs dragging him to the earth. His speedometer tremoring at 250 knots, he arms the ordnance and re-grips his stick. Almost there. Now we see how hard it is to execute the dive and, unlike the kamikaze, actually pull your ass out of it. Maz catches a glimpse of Philly's plane just ahead, let go of his bombs at 50 feet. They flutter down, one of them hitting square and erupting on the deck. As Philly clears, Maz squeezes on his sextuple 50 cal guns, spraying the deck with incendiary tracer. The speedometer seizures at 280. The giant flame-belching battleship rushes up to meet him, and at the critical moment, Maz releases his bombs and wrenches the stick back. <laughs> Battling gravity as the bird grinds out of its nosedive. But he's dragging. The whole plane shudders, heaving. Tracers blast through his wing and rudder as he claws out of the kill zone. Finally clear and able to level out his bird, he breathes for the first time, now checking for damage amid the metallic voices ringing in his ears. The airwaves were full of what sounded like a hundred sportscasters breathlessly reporting the same game, all in code. 
USS Hornet's Corsairs to deal with the lead cruiser escort. At least eight other ships were putting up an absolutely ferocious wall of flak around their big mama. Not a single plane escaped damage on that first run. Corsair pilot Kenneth D. Huntington answers the call. Hello, Pipe Dream 12. Good copy, your last. Charlie Bravo 20 coming around. Authentication vector 210. We'll engage over. Now counting softball-sized holes punched in his right wing, Maz keys Philly in the clear. Hello, Madmaster Philly Deuce. I know I caught some back there. How am I? Over. Philly swings up, looking him over. Eh, right side, couple bites, you're okay, but, uh, you still got your bombs. You planning on giving them? What? What the hell? You're joking me! You know, Mad Maz, old Baldy says, you can't take him home with you. Son of a bitch! I knew it was heavy coming out of that! Son of a bitch! Captain Hara muscles his lead cruiser, Yahagi, through a forest of hundred-foot geysers of exploding sea. The sky above his head is a cacophony of screaming, buzzing death. His own gunners blast away. Bristling barrels flashing in every direction. Swung out in front of Yamato, her twin towers of double-mounted six-inch cannons are at the perfect range to wreak havoc on planes swooping for their main target. A helldiver diving for Yamato catches a shell burst. Sparks into a fireball and meteors into the sea. Hara screams for more speed as barrel-rolling Hellcats arc, twist, and dive overhead, now sighting him. He expertly swings his bow, dodging whistling 500-pound bombs by inches, the crashing explosion showering the deck with dirty water. His plan was to distract some of the onslaught from Yamato. This plan was now for damn sure working. Yahagi's big six-inch guns track an incoming Corsair, the turrets racing to keep up, but as she jukes and dips, the bird closes, and at this range, it's like swatting mosquitoes with a sledgehammer. She rolls and twists, pulling every acrobatic trick in the book, slipping through technicolor blasts of lethal flak, somehow putting the cruiser in her sights. As gunners blast fire into the sky, Hara tries to swing the bow, his eyes glued to the screaming, diving Corsair. He sees her fat, thousand-pound bombs separate. The plane roars, breaking off. The bow sights the water, but too slow. The black explosive-packed ordnance whistles right down for her. Bullseye.
The front six-inch gun tower disappears in a black eruption that throws every man sprawling to the deck. Using his sheathed katana as a crutch, Captain Hara staggers to his feet, blinking at the giant smoking crater that was moments ago his best weapon. Kenneth D. Huntington would win a Navy Cross for this beautifully executed strike. As all you leathernecks and jarheads will know, he's still celebrated to this day, going down in the books with the heading, One Marine, One Bomb, One Navy Cross. As the smoke clears, Hara checks his watch out of instinct. They've only been in action for 12 minutes. But before he's even regained his footing, he spots a row of intruders skimming the water, beelining for his stricken ship. The captain tries to scream out in order, but no words come. The planes press on unmercifully, their torpedoes splashing into the water and burrowing white underwater tunnels towards his ship. From the bridge on Yamato, Admiral Ito watches the puffs of flak above Yahagi dissipate after a bloom of black sprouts from her deck. Then, moments later, a flash, throwing up a huge geyser of water. For a moment, Ito stands in awe of all the colors. Rose gold streams of tracer licking the sky. Amid the screams of incoming, Ito is tackled to the floor as whistling bullets shriek through the open windows, kicking and ricocheting off the steel walls of the open bridge, sending every man diving. As Ariga tries to dodge punches thrown from every direction, two helldivers bore through the wall of AA fire and hit Yamato with a pair of thousand-pound semi-armor-piercing bombs. One glances off the superstructure and obliterates two 25-millimeter gun tubs. And the other strikes further astern with an incredible boom. Still pressed to the floor, the thundering bomb blast throws Ito a full foot off the ground, the shockwave reverberating the whole of the giant ship. Yamato is built for punishment, but shit, that hit hard. Captain Ariga screams for a damage report, not realizing his radio op is slumped over the panel, his brains spattered across the instruments. Stretcher bearers clamber in to clear the corpse and his waiting replacement Ensign Masato Yoshida automatically takes his seat. With eyes wide and face bleached, the 23-year-old radio op flicks bits of his former superior officer off the headset and slips it on. Ariga is still screaming for a damage report, his voice finally puncturing Yoshida's fog of shock. He now realizes that the captain is screaming for him. He snaps too, twisting blood-spattered knobs, cycling the frequencies, keying the talkback but gets nothing but static hiss. He finally answers, It's dead, sir. No signal at all. Another comms officer, with an ear pressed to the telephone, shouts, Radar room not responding, but my circuits are good. Ariga, concerned with more incoming intruders, bellows, Find out what the hell is going on! Before the words are out of his mouth, rough hands yank Yoshida out of his seat. 
A wild-eyed warrant officer clutches him by the shirt and screams, You're doing no damn good sitting here. Get word from Nobura in the main radar room. With that, Yoshida is practically thrown out the door and sent clanking down the stairs. But as he reaches the open deck, he freezes upon the sight of absolute chaos. Now please, try and use your ears like eyes for me here. This is the scene I would shoot with an Alejandro Inarritu shaky, over-the-shoulder, no-cut follow camera like in the opening of The Revenant or Alfonso Cuaron's ending of Children of Men. You know what I'm talking about. Ready? Feeling as if he's been sealed inside a snow globe from hell and violently shaken by giant evil hands, Yoshida sprints through the maelstrom towards cover. The sky is alive with screeching death. Hellcats roar down, raking the uncovered gun pits with .50, mowing a path for the following helldivers and their thousand-pound bombs. And it's nothing like what he's seen in the movies. When a man is hit with a 50 caliber bullet, a two and a half inch piece of lead screaming at 3,000 feet per second, you don't topple and fall like in a western. No, the human body tends to explode. Men are flung like ragdolls. Arms and legs are blasted off, slinging wildly, spraying through the air, sent tumbling across the blood-soaked deck in ugly, fleshy contortions. Human viscera is splattered high up the smokestack, like scarlet, crimson-colored modern art, painted by violent impact. Yoshida scurries, crouching as low as he can, splashing through slick, congealing blood, now pressed behind a 25mm gun tub as bullets sing and clank off the armored steel, or burst through helpless flesh. Gunners fire at the swooping enemy, who dive close enough to be charred by their muzzle flash. Sadaki and Takeo sprint to their hissing gun. They tear off the old bags and slam home new ones, and Gun 36 rat-a-tat tats back to life. The streaking bullets punch holes in the belly of a roaring hellcat. Spreading through, shattering the cockpit. The plane twists spasmodically and bursts into flame, sending the black, gunpowder-stained crew into wild cheers of victory as they watch it smash into the sea in a white spray. Yoshida takes this moment to vault over wreckage and tangled corpses, dashing through the open amid barking guns and singing steel. Full breathless sprint, he makes it across, his body slamming against the bulkhead where a five-inch turret should be, now just a gutted hole, seemingly torn open by a giant hand. He clambers down into the darkness, pushing deeper into the ship's bowels in search of the radar room. Yoshida rushes past shirtless sailors running in the opposite direction, lit only by staccato strobing electric light. Men fight a blazing fire billowing from the barracks. Muffled screams echo down the cavernous steel tunnels. He keeps running, 
He leaps over a crawling man, slithering on his belly, dragging a crimson tail of intestine, and sprints faster. Finally, arriving at the radio room. But as he steps inside, he finds nothing but a charred cavern. Chunks of flash-scorched flesh cling to the walls and across the shattered instrument panel. A mangled, headless, armless torso hangs impaled on the light fixture, and in the center of the room stands a figure. Stripped to his loincloth, the figure screams up at a giant hole bored through three levels of ship, opening up to the white sky above. The figure slowly turns, revealing comms officer Nobura, his whole face and chest a seared ruin of charred, bubbling flesh. Stepping into the beam of spotlight, courtesy of an American thousand-pound bomb, he fixes Sadaki with unblinking eyes of fury. He shrieks, Yamato Banzai, and swings the naked, shining blade of his katana like a wild man. (laughs) Yoshida stumbles back, tripping into the hall, Scrambling to his feet, he bolts, but is soon blinded by billowing smoke from the depths. He coughs through the acrid vapor, groping for whatever way is out, quickly becoming lost in this hellish labyrinth. He turns a corner and into what was the senior wardroom. Moments ago, it was packed with hundreds of wounded men, Medics bandaging and stitching injuries, scorched sailors writhing in agony, stacked on stretchers that filled the adjoining hallways. That is, until the bomb hit. Yoshida now stands peering into a human butcher shop. The steel walls, convexed by a direct hit, now look like the inside of a blender. Yoshida swoons, unable to process what he's seeing. Another bomb impact rattles the ship, sending the hanging lamps swinging, illuminating the chamber of hacked, charred, and liquefied human pieces in freakish, strobing electric light. His body spasms, doubling him over, and he pukes his guts out. Wiping tears from his eyes, he looks back the way he came. A wall of black smoke is pushing his way. As a type of numbness washes over Yoshida, one thought is clear. This is not where he wants to die. Knowing that if not the way he came, there was only one way out. As black smoke billows from behind him, he has no choice and steps into the butcher shop. His boots crunch and splish on a floor unevenly carpeted in limbs and lumps of gore. A somehow unsocketed eyeball stuck into the wall stares at him unblinkingly as he passes. Finally through that portal to hell, he steadies with a hand on the wall and propels himself up the staircase and towards the surface. Finding a hole punched through mid-deck, he climbs back into the chaos of the open deck. Emerging out of a gash cleaved through the teakwood deck, 
he finds himself somehow on the opposite side of the ship, now beneath the rear triple-mounted 18-inch gun battery. The massive gun is silent, billowing smoke, looking as if it's been staved in by a massive warhammer. Yet, the ladder up the side is still somehow hanging on. Yoshida sprints to the ladder and claws his way up, clanking rung by rung. A Corsair, wrenching out of its dive, whips past, almost splitting him in half with its wingtip, causing him to slip. Helplessly hanging there above the battle, he sees little figures below scrambling on the mauled deck. A Hellcat screeches down, buzzsawing through the bunched-together layers of the midship gun tubs, spattering loaders across the bulkhead. The next batch of loaders scramble quickly to replace them, sacrificing their own flesh to keep the bristling barrels barking. Out across the sea, guns sparkle and boom in all directions. Aircraft buzz and roar like demon wasps. Tracers slit the sky. Puffs of flak burst as far as his eye can see. Finally back atop the superstructure, he enters the bridge. Finding Ariga still barking orders, his crew struggling to swing the giant ship away from falling bombs. Ito stands rock-like, both hands white knuckle gripping the railing, staring into the distance with unblinking eyes. A radio officer shrieks, splayed across the floor, trying to stuff his spilled-out guts back into his slit-open stomach. His shrieks abruptly stop, his face fixing into a ghastly grin. A stretcher bearer yanks the headset off his head and drags him away. Another throws handfuls of sawdust into the puddle he's made, so nobody slips. The warrant officer who sent Yoshida on his investigatory mission spots him as he staggers in and grabs him by the lapel, screaming for the report. As Yoshida opens his mouth to answer, the warrant officer's head pops into a pink, red, blinding, stinging spray, the stray bullet twanging off the steel wall behind. The warrant officer crumbles to his knees, falling in an ugly thud. Twitching, Yoshida wipes his eyelashes, sticky with ruby gore, and turns to Captain Ariga, who is still yelling for his report. Damage report, sir, he finally answers. Ariga turns, but stops mid-sentence at the sight of Yoshida's blood-spattered face. The radio room is gone. Direct hit. Nothing is left. Ariga glances to Ito, whose eyes are still fixed to the horizon. Another bomb hit shudders through the ship. He turns back to the blood-covered boy standing before him. Then, the captain says, we fight blind. It wasn't just the Japanese that were fighting blind. American flyers in the air were fighting one of the most chaotic air battles of all time. 
Coordination is utterly impossible. Hundreds of voices screech amid the static. Every target blooming with explosions, every plane taking damage. It's become a total free-for-all. The Americans are stunned at how much damage Yamato is taking. If only the Japanese had fielded some kind of fighter escort, anything at all, this could have been a real mess. Helldivers diving at Yamato slam her with thousand-pound bombs and are shredded by AA on the way out, then chased to the horizon by booming flak. Although her big 18-inch guns were inaccurate at this elevation, never designed for anything but hard targets, they were filling the sky with impressively lethal fireworks. Yamato's cadre of cruisers and destroyers were too being smashed to bits. A brace of Avenger torpedo bombers set up on the x-axis of the cruiser Asashimo, while a phalanx of machine gun spitting Hellcats buzzsaws her from the Y. The U.S. strategy was working. Distract with raking fire from the fighters, leaving the torpedo bombers clear to set up their low and slow approach. Down to just three of their original 14, Avengers from USS Bennington approach Asashimo, taking scorching fire, but bravely staying on course long enough to sight and drop their fish. They would have much rather saved their torpedoes for Yamato, but they were set for shallow depth, could not be recalibrated mid-flight, and would have been wasted on Yamato's absurdly thick anti-torpedo belt. They couldn't go for the grand prize, so Asashimo it was. Their fish splash down in textbook fashion, running hot and true to target. Asashimo tries to wrench herself away but sees them too late. She struck amidships, violently buckling out of the water to joyful cheers of bingo ringing across American airwaves. Rupturing beneath the waves, she caves in on herself, and in mere minutes, nothing is left but floating wreckage and a few hundred screaming, drowning men thrashing in a pool of black oil which now blooms like a blood spore. To hell with the bombs. This fight would be settled by torpedoes. From Yamato's bridge, Ariga gamely muscles the giant ship out of the way of whistling bombs. The near misses, soaking the entire deck in hundred-foot sea spray and tsunamiing gunners off their mounts. The little brute of a man is doing a hell of a job, but is then alerted to a line of menacing black shapes skimming the sea, racing his way. Torpedo bombers, hard to starboard. The skipper screams for the main batteries to load Sanshiki and target the sea in the line of their approach. The two front batteries of 18-inch guns swing to starboard and blast their deafening volley. From the cockpit of the eight incoming Avengers, their giant target suddenly disappears behind erupting black clouds and a wall of water. They grit their teeth and fight to hold course as flak shatters windshields and buckshots through their paper-thin aluminum skin. 
A screaming shell obliterates one of the Avengers on impact. The tumbling wreckage crashing into the sea. The squad closes ranks. They had to stay on course as long as they possibly could. Buzzing the waves at a mere 400 feet, they would drop their spread of torpedoes at varying trajectories so that no matter which way the target tried to dodge, she was gonna catch something. Now flying directly down the barrels of six massive roaring guns, their planes rattle, nearly tearing apart at the seams. But they have to hang on for just a little longer. They must get in range for the fish to run hot and true when... Another Avenger runs into a steel wall, erupting in flame and smashing into the sea. Peppered by fragments of his wingman, the squad leader pulls the trigger. That's it! Let him swim! At 1,200 yards, the squad drops their fish and wrenches their battered aircraft the hell out of there. Their spawn of six 20-foot-long explosive-packed tubes now hiss through the water towards their target. Riga spots the white bubbling wakes racing towards him. All he can do is comb their wakes, try and slip the blade of his bow between the torpedo trajectories. The giant vessel groans as it scythes the water, desperately twisting towards the oncoming torpedoes. As the bow swings, a slash of bubbles ripple past. Another slips just wide of the stern. But Riga can only do so much. Three more shining silver sharks race towards their mark. They cut through the sea and slam into Yamato simultaneously. Hitting home like a sledgehammer, the massive ship buckles on impact, shaking the great behemoth from bow to stern. Topside on gun 36, Sadaki is knocked off his feet in the shower of erupting seawater, but Takeo manages to catch his arm, stopping him from being washed across the deck. As he tugs him to his feet, already more Hellcats are screaming down from above. Tracers torch their gun mount. The loader swapping a magazine explodes in a gush of red. Chunks of his flesh lodge into the magazine and receiver. The gunner sits, hands still on the trigger at his silent gun, beheaded by a 50 caliber incendiary round. As Sadaki sprints to his gun through screeching steel, he's barely aware of the warm spray of blood spattered across his cheek. He doesn't see Takeo, running by his side, drop to the deck. Sadaki reaches the gun and shoves the headless gunner out of the seat, sending him splashing to the deck. He tries to rechamber, but he can't. The fucker's jammed. He screams for Takeo, but looking around amid the din of battle, he realizes he's all alone. With no choice, Sadaki leaps down and digs into the exposed feeder to clear the jam, finding a rubbery chunk of human flesh lodged in the spring, but he can't get a grip on the slippery viscera. That's when he clocks an incoming Avenger, all by itself, banking around with purpose. Sadaki frantically digs, trying to free the jam as the Avenger swings onto target, lining him up, now just 250 yards out. He screams in frustration, finally getting a hold of a tuft of still-attached hair and tugs out a flapping hunk of human scalp. He 
flings it, clears the bolt, and leaps onto the gun. Ripping the charger, he swings the barrel, letting out a screaming war cry, and opens fire with flashing tracer. Leading the incoming Avenger just enough, the red gold streaks of lead whiz through the air, blasting the low-slung torpedo mount, shearing the bomb off, sending it tumbling end over end and bursting on impact with the sea. With bullets stabbed through her engine, the Avenger wrenches up and out of its dive, roaring just feet over Sadaki's head. All alone at his smoking gun mount, Sadaki screams at the plane as it trails inky black smoke, coasting lazily into the sky. Inside that massacred Avenger, pilot William E. Delaney, born and raised in Detroit, can't even see his own wingtips through the black smoke pouring out of his engine. He screams to his tail gunner, Shit, Mikey! I think they got us that time! No shit! Delaney throttles down and pulls back the stick, climbing for a decent enough jump altitude. As soon as they touch a thousand feet, he screams back. And he doesn't have to ask twice. His radio man and gunner rip back the canopy and jump. After seeing their shoots billow in his rear view, he'd never see them again. With his boys clear, Delaney yanks the canopy handle but it won't budge. While struggling to crack it open, he feels a blast of heat from below. Flames engulf his instrument panel. A squirt of burning oil sets his arm ablaze. Now frantic, he tears and punches at the damn handle, finally busting it loose. The hatch ripping clean off. Delaney climbs out of the cockpit, now standing upright on the wing with slipstream putting out the flames on his arm. Somehow, now surfing, impossibly calm on the wing of his speeding, burning Avenger, Delaney grips the little red handle on his chute. He faces into the wind, braces, and pulls. Delaney floats in the air, now able to see the whole battle rage around him. Two of his brethren tear by as blue-black flashes, roaring towards a Japanese cruiser that's putting up an umbrella of flak. Caught in a gust of wind, he now realizes he too is flying towards that beleaguered cruiser. Yanking his chute cords, he tries to steer away from it, but has little choice in the matter, and finally splashes down just a few hundred yards from the fire-belching ship. Delaney pops the tab on his Mae West. Mae West was the given nickname for those cheap inflatable life jackets because when it inflated, it kind of made you look like a big-titted lady. Anyway. The Mae West puffs to life while he frees himself from the tangle of shroud lines of the chute. Delaney now realizes he has dropped helplessly into the center of a swirling battlefield, now afforded a shark's eye view of the action. He's close enough to see figures scrambling on that big cruiser, 
Her AA gunner is pumping tracer into the sky. Smoke pouring from gouges over cratered deck. Her booming cannons sending shockwaves through the ocean that crash over his little raft moments later. And to his left looms the colossal leviathan herself. Yamato, with her 18-inch guns thundering. Creating her own lightning storm in the heavens above. Groups of two or three Hellcats or Helldivers swoop down from all angles, like vicious blackbirds getting their talons into the Great Beast. For a moment she disappears, ringed in a redwood forest of bomb blast, but as the smoke and sea spray clears, she re-emerges, just as majestic as ever. Hearing the ominous growl of incoming engines behind him, Gillespie twists around, spotting a neat line of Avengers skimming the waves. The cruiser clocks him at the same time, and suddenly the airspace above his head is a screaming, whistling, 3,000 foot per second river of neon orange lead. Caught directly between the incoming Avengers and the stricken cruiser, he hugs yellow rubber for dear life as short-falling bullets explode the sea around him in a stinging, spraying tempest. As the Avengers close, he sees them drop their fish, splashing into the sea just a football field's length away. The squad then roars with deafening speed overhead, their propeller blades sucking the air from Gillespie's lungs as they break formation. Then, moments after, the charging spread of torpedoes hiss just below his feet. As fast and big as smooth-running subway cars, boiling up road-sized tracks of white bubbles that rock his tiny lifecraft. Gillespie rolls over and watches the fish relentlessly speed to target, the cruiser now desperately trying to turn her bow to them. But from the moment the tubes hit the water, the die was cast. There is no escape. Gillespie suddenly realizes how close he is when... The cruiser is T-boned by an explosive freight train. Chunks of ship blow hundreds of feet into the sky, with the erupting geyser sending Gillespie diving for cover as pieces of wreckage hail and splash down around him like twisted steel meteors. Gillespie then starts searching for his paddle. There were about to be a lot more men in the water. From 2,400 feet, Maz spots the cruiser Hamakaze erupt in a volcanic geyser below. One more down. The remaining Japanese cruisers and destroyers writhe like a nest of vipers, cutting white S-curves as they twist and curl away from falling bombs, steaming torpedoes, and blazing machine gun fire. After his first unsuccessful bombing run, and subsequently beating the shit out of every button, lever, and gear attached to the bomb release, 
Maz is damn sure his two 550-pound bombs are primed and ready to fly. As he would later say, quote, I didn't carry those damn things 250 miles out into the Pacific for nothing. This time he wouldn't chance it. Despite the damage, his Hellcat felt good. These American machines were certainly built for punishment. With no idea where the rest of his squad is, Maz picks a clear path through the melee and dives on Yamato. Forget the machine guns, fuck being cute. It was time to slug this bitch right in the throat. He chins up, nearly vertical, getting as much air as he can, then punches the stick, plunging down directly on top of the ship. Despite all the carnage inflicted on deck, the flak barrage has not let up, and Maz again finds himself charging into a hornet's nest. With the whole plane shaking, propellers screeching, jolted by booming flak, he plummets from the heavens, his gun sight locked onto his chosen target, the black mouth of Yamato's central smokestack. This is in fact the exact attack approach prescribed for the kamikaze, and it would take every bit of concentration and luck to make sure he would not become one today. With his wingtips slipping between tracers, Maz watches the smokestack grow steadily, becoming a giant gaping maw. And just as it feels like it would swallow him whole, lets go of his bombs and jacks his stick back. Bottoming out, slamming his head to the seat back, the plane breaking gravity, Rebelli missing Yamato's superstructure by mere feet, and screeching out of its dive. On deck, Sadaki sees Maz's Hellcat rip skyward, just in time to see him let go of those two black bombs, which seemed to hang in the air, wobbling in slow motion. But he could hear no whistle. An old-timer once told him not to worry if you hear the whistle, because that meant the shell would never hit you. That only worked for artillery, I guess, but he never mentioned anything about actually seeing 1,100 pounds of steel-encased, high-explosive TNT falling directly on your head. Sadaki watches helplessly as the bombs stab home. The first slams into the superstructure. The second obliterates the gun position next to him in a searing white flash. Then black. Oh, don't you go anywhere. This is just intermission. We ain't done by a long sight. This episode was brought to life with help from the vocal cords of Johnny Verena, Eric Schmecky Wrights, and Matthew Kresh. An undying and infinite thank you to Mr. Stephen Downs for your support and enthusiasm. Master Chief, cheers to you.
Are you digging this shit? Well, you made it this far. If you are in fact enjoying this, then please, bloody tell somebody. You don't hear any ads on this thing. This here is a grassroots movement, and it's your voice and enthusiasm that fuels this little operation. So do me a solid. Spread the word. Like and subscribe. Give me a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify. You can write anything. You can go tell me to go f*** myself. Honestly, any interaction will make this podcast more visible and accessible to others who might also dig it. War Daddy is also on Instagram. Can't get enough of a glorious way to die? Need some visuals to frame the scale of the action? Well, I'll be sure to keep the feed alive with images as well as book and movie companions to enhance every detail of the show. Give me a follow, dammit. That's War Daddy Podcast on Instagram. I'm also fixing to have some quality gear available for sale on the website. Fancy a War Daddy hip flask? Hand engraved by yours truly? Well, you'll soon find a limited run of those babies, along with t-shirts and other gear available for sale on the website. Every red cent will be poured back into production of the show. Your support is greatly appreciated. That's thewardaddypodcast.com. Time for a quick break. Refill your glass, roll another joint, and we'll pick this up with the final chapter of Yamato's Death Saga. Episode 6, Oblivion. Coming soon to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your loud noises. Cheers till then.